Blog Talk Radio. your host, Dr. Nancy. We are on scan number 3251. If you'd like to be a part of the panel tonight, please call the guest line at 646-595-2118. I'm joined tonight by my wonderful co-host, Ms. Kim Lakin, and uh, our wonderful guest, Russell Stagg. Um, Before we introduce him, I'm going to get ready to read our mission statement and first also introduce what NASCA stands for, okay? So NASCA, uh, Stop Child uh, Abuse Now radio show, is what you're listening to tonight. And NASCA stands for the National Association of Adult Survivors of Child Abuse. And right now, I would like to just read our mission statement. We have a single purpose at NASCA to address issues related to childhood abuse and trauma, including sexual assault, violence, or physical abuse, emotional traumas, and neglect. And we do so with only two goals. One, educating the public, especially as related to helping society get over its taboo of discussing childhood sexual abuse, presenting facts, showing child abuse to be a pandemic worldwide problem that affects everyone. And number two, offering hope and healing through numerous paths, providing many services to adult survivors of child abuse and information for anyone interested in the many issues involving prevention, intervention, and recovery. Again, we're on scan number 3251. And if you would like to join us tonight and be a part of our panel, please call 646-595-2118. And I'm going to read our wonderful guest bio, Mr. Russell Stagg. Tonight's special guest is Russell Stagg from St. John's, New Brunswick, Canada, a child abuse survivor who's now a licensed counseling therapist, a psychologist, psychotherapist, and a registered clinical counselor. He's written a book about it um, based on his personal experience, besides a bit of his life story. He's 
especially asked to talk about it, too. One in six, a man's guide to overcoming child sexual abuse. Russell says, I help people with issues such as depression, addiction, or relationship problems. Some of my clients have experienced bullying, domestic violence, or the trauma of leaving uh, an abusive religion. My specialty is trauma, particularly sexual abuse and sexual assault. And I have written on the subject for, ma- for major psychology journals, he explains. In working with individuals, I developed my person-centered approach as the Jewish chaplain for the University of Calgary and as the interfaith resident chaplain for the emergency intensive care, the burn unit at Calgary Foothills Hospital. It means I do my utmost to experience your situation as if it were my own. Wow, that's, that's very, very deep. Uh, he continues, this is one of the things that set him apart. Then I use the techniques of cognitive behavioral therapy to challenge and overcome toxic thoughts, behaviors, and emotions. And if you've been struggling with PTSD or repeated bouts of depression, I may introduce you to the healing techniques of mindfulness. Used with caution, it can be a useful tool. The technique Russell uses with couples is a bit different. When I work with couples, I focus on the powerful emotions underneath the anger. Sharing and acknowledging those emotions can actually bring you closer rather than driving you apart. Without further ado, I would like to introduce Russell Stagg. Russell, thank you so much for, for joining us tonight. Hi, Russell. Could you hear us? Hi. Uh, Russell, are you there? Okay. Hello. Uh, Yes. Can you hear me? Okay. Uh, Nancy. Can you hear me? I all open. Hold on a second, Russell. Okay. I'm so happy you're here tonight. I'm trying to help them out. I guess they're having a little problems here. Um, I will leave my computer open, and you can work off of me, or I can help you open up the mics as they come in. Okay. 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 Yeah. No, I'm on here, Carol. I'm on. I opened. Okay, up. good. Then you got it all so, straight yeah, now, and and I can and yeah. I can say good night. And I'm very thankful that you good got night. on this time, Russell. <laughs> yes, I am. <laughs> My God. And, okay. uh, Thank you, Carol. Can, can anybody right. hear me? Sorry about that. Yes, we, yes, yeah, we, we hear you. We can hear you. Okay, so you're on the show together now. I'm All the right, vice president. Fine. I have to make sure okay. everything's okay. All right. Okay. Bye-bye now. Okay. Thanks, Carl. All right. Thank you. Okay. okay. All right. Sorry about that, Russell. Okay. We had a little technical um, issue going on at the beginning of the show, and we had a few people come in and just open up the mics. But without further ado, I would like to introduce Russell Stagg. Thank you, Russell, for joining us tonight. Okay. You're very welcome. Thank you, Dr. Nancy. Uh, yes, so as, uh, as Dr. Nancy said, I'm a trauma therapist specializing in uh, sexual abuse and sexual assault. I'm also a survivor of child sexual abuse. I'll be telling you a bit about my story, um, yes. about how I came to write my book, and of course I'll be talking about my book. Um, sure. I plan, to, I plan to break for questions in about uh, 30 minutes, and then I'll uh, have time for questions again at the end. So... Uh, 
the, the story of my life isn't really about the abuse or the damage it did. It's, it's about my life afterward. Um, I live in Canada. Um, I'm originally from the UK. Um, I'm the youngest of three children. Uh, my father was a university professor. My mother was of German-Jewish descent, and in public she was openly anti-Semitic, which says a lot for the degree of shame that she carried around. Um, she was also addicted to opioids, and I'm sure many of you um, know that in uh, families where there's addiction, it's like the elephant in the living room. Uh, everyone walks very carefully around it while pretending it's not there. So everybody pretended it wasn't a problem. Um, my mother sexually abused me pretty much daily. Um, it started about age four and a half. Uh, my nanny left. My father was at work, my siblings were at school, and I was alone with my mother. So she would call me into the bedroom to help undress her. Um, she'd be naked to the waist. Um, she would have me take her stockings off and her panties, and then she'd take a bath, and I would help her take a bath and help her wash and dry, and then she would get into bed and have me take my clothes off and get in bed with her. And eventually, she had me performing sex acts on her. Um, and one evening, um, an incredibly traumatic event happened. Um, and I talked about it in my book uh, many years. That happened many years after the event that I had this flashback. Um, as I got out of bed one morning, powerful feelings triggered an event that shook my world. The bedroom disappeared, and I was suddenly six again with my mother in a North Devon farmhouse. I wasn't remembering I was there, reliving a memory from almost 30 years before. I was alone with my mother. That evening, long after the pupils had departed for the day, she took me down the road to the village school. The small building had expanded into neighboring houses. We passed tiny classrooms jammed with small desks until we reached a larger one resembling a small chapel. There we met another mother, her daughter a few years older than me and a group of adults dressed in BDSM type gear. I noticed one holding a camera, another a whip. It was hours before we left again. Hours filled with utter horror. I was coerced into unspeakable acts. I felt powerless. And more than anything, I was desperate to rescue the girl and myself. I relived the fragment of that horror for a few moments. And then, as abruptly as it started, the scene ended. By the time I was in primary school, there was less opportunity for my mother to abuse me. And then when I turned eight, my brother moved out of the bedroom we shared. I was in the top of a bunk bed. My mother would come in at night. She would climb up to the bed and push my head under the covers. And I wrote in my book about what it felt like for me after that experience. Afterward, 
I'd want the ground to swallow me up. I felt so ashamed. I felt grotesque, as if I was horribly disfigured, except it was inside instead of outside. I figured everybody could see it. No, I didn't so much feel it as know it right down in the depths of my soul. And I felt terribly guilty about what was happening with my mother, but I didn't know how to stop it. It never occurred to me that she was the one who should have felt shame. And one memory that I have from those times is burying my head in the pillow and saying over and over to myself, I'll pretend it never happened. Um, My father rarely interacted with us uh, except for yelling at us to obey our mother. Uh, By now, we had moved to Canada. We were living in Toronto, and I was abused by a music teacher uh, for three years. I was very small for my age. I didn't reach puberty until I was almost 16, which is pretty late. I didn't have friends, but I wasn't bullied. I was excluded. And I felt like a reject because I was. And I had incredibly deep feelings of being horribly damaged. Um, And just a a deep, deep sense that I was contaminating the world just by being in it. I knew it didn't make sense, but I just felt it so, so strongly. And then in high school, I found a best friend. And that was alcohol. And pretty soon I was drinking heavily. I built up an enormous tolerance. Uh, One evening, I drank two 26-ounce bottles of vodka and had six beers. And that was an amount that would kill an ordinary person several times over, and I weighed less than 100 pounds. Um, I used to have episodes of serious withdrawal, um, complete with hallucinations. Um, I would walk around with my hands in my pockets because Uh, They were shaking so much all the time. Uh, I discovered weed, and I didn't just have a toke. I got so stoned I couldn't stand. I overdosed repeatedly. Uh, It's called greening out. I would be retching for hours. I suffered extreme nausea. And it sounds horrible, which it was, but it felt better than feeling damaged and contaminated. I kept myself. Uh, just to deal with all the pain inside. I had tremendous social anxiety. I was literally terrified of talking to anybody, even a clerk in a store. I had PTSD, even though I didn't know what it was. Uh, Seemingly innocent triggers would bring up overwhelming feelings of shame. I had tremendous trouble sleeping. I had nightmares. If anyone in my line of sight Uh, moved suddenly, I would flinch. Um, I was easily startled. I spaced out a lot. Uh, If anybody touched me, I flinched, which made going to the doctor difficult. And on top of that, I had the symptoms of complex PTSD. Anger, problems with intimacy, of course, feelings of worthlessness and self-loathing. I was seriously suicidal. And Growing up, my mother had set tasks for me that were way beyond my age. And then when I couldn't do them, she told me I couldn't do anything right. So I truly believed I couldn't do anything right. I didn't think I could do even menial jobs. And so I stayed in school. 
and I was smart, so I got scholarships. I got a degree in physics. I got a master's degree in astronomy and a PhD in astronomy. I had, despite that, a succession of jobs where I was underemployed and taken advantage of. That was pretty much the story of my life. I met a woman who had never dated. We got married. We moved back to the UK. And then we moved to Calgary in Western Canada. And here I was. I was in my mid-30s. I was underemployed. I had never had a full-time or permanent job. My marriage was imploding because my wife couldn't understand what was wrong with me. I was struggling to stay clean and sober and not always succeeding. I was constantly angry at everyone and everything. I couldn't handle adult relationships. I couldn't talk to people. I had tremendous social anxiety, and I felt damaged and contaminated. And the, the book, The Courage to Heal, had come out, I guess, a couple of years before. It was written for women. And, yeah, sure, I'd had adverse sexual experiences as a child, but, you know, the thought that a, a male could have been sexually abused, it was, I, I just couldn't even imagine that happening. And then one day, over the noon hour, I went into a bookstore. And I saw a book, Adult Children of Abusive Parents. And it was written by a man. And feeling very guilty, I bought this book. And I took it home. And I hid it at the bottom of a sock drawer. And I just thought, this is ridiculous. Why am I even thinking I was abused? Boys can't be abused. And a few nights later, when I was alone, I took it out. And I started reading. And I only got as far as the first sentence. Like you, I was abused as a child and I started crying and I couldn't stop. I cried all night long. I was curled up on the floor in a fetal position crying. I cried for months. I got into therapy. I got sober. I joined a 12-step group for adults from dysfunctional families. And there I found friends that I felt safe with for the first time in my life. And I had a remarkable experience where I walked into a room where they were all sitting. And I didn't feel that surge of fear that I always felt when I walked into a room and there were people there. I got into... AA and NA, Narcotics Anonymous, and I wrote my mother. I told her I never wanted to see her again or speak to her again, and I never did. I went to the police in Toronto about the music teacher who had abused me. They refused to do anything, so I hired investigators they quickly found 10 others who had been abused and got affidavits from them. 
We went back to the police. They prosecuted. The perpetrator pleaded guilty. Nobody had bothered to tell me that I had the right to make a victim impact statement, so I didn't. And so there was a four-year sentence, but it got suspended because there were all these wonderful letters about what a wonderful person um, the perpetrator was, uh, including one from the Lieutenant Governor of Ontario. So, typical story. And then I haven't recovered at this point, but it was the start of a long journey of recovery. And I went to a retreat in Oregon with uh, 29 other male survivors of child sexual abuse. And the interesting thing was that most of the men there had been abused by women. And a third had been abused by their mothers. And even at that time, 30 years ago, there was strong evidence that this was typical of male survivors in the U.S., that most had female perpetrators, that about a third were abused by their mothers. Um, the, the stereotype is that males are overwhelmingly uh, abused by other males, and that is simply not true. So it was about this time that I bought a highly touted book on sexual abuse recovery for male survivors. The author described himself as a psychotherapist, but his degree was in education and he had no apparent qualifications. He almost completely ignored survivors' two biggest concerns, PTSD and addictions. Think about that. If he were counseling male survivors, as he claimed, could he really have missed their biggest issues? He talked about male survivors wondering if their abuse made them gay. Trust me, well over 99% don't. That's a myth based on a tired stereotype. The book gave the impression that abuse of males is overwhelmingly perpetrated by other males. Yet another myth based on untrue and unfair stereotypes. How could someone counseling male survivors miss the fact that most had female perpetrators and a third were abused by their mothers? Or perhaps more likely, was he just making stuff up? A lot of you will recognize the book I don't recommend it, and I felt betrayed. I decided that someday I would write a book addressing survivors' real concerns and fully acknowledging female perpetrated abuse. And so, for several years, I worked on a book about my abuse by my mother. And at the end, I decided, well, no one wants to read a book about how a male was sexually abused by a female. Uh, I don't know if that was the correct decision or not, but I decided that was not going to fly and the project got shelved. Well, my marriage ended, and it probably should have, uh, long before. And unfortunately, I got into a relationship with an abusive woman. 
And at this time I was teaching part-time at a community college. My mother died. I didn't go to the funeral. And all I felt was relief that she was gone. She was out of my life forever. I didn't regret having cut ties with her completely. And my PTSD got really bad about this time. I got into therapy again, and it gave me the strength to leave the relationship with this abusive woman. So here I was now in my mid-40s, underemployed. I had still never had a full-time or permanent job. I was broke. I was living in a basement suite, and for the first time in my life, I got a full-time job teaching at a prep school in suburban New York. And two important things happened. The first is I joined a synagogue. Now that may not seem like a big step, but you have to remember my mother was openly anti-Semitic. And I had also never set foot in a synagogue myself. So it was partly a spiritual quest. It was partly an FU to my mother's memory. The second thing that happened was not so good. I got married, and I got married to a woman who was addicted to opioids, just as my mother had been. And just as with my mother, it was part of me recognized there was a problem, and part of me pretended there wasn't one. I left that job after a year. I got a job uh, at a community college in suburban Chicago uh, teaching and running the planetarium, which was actually pretty fun. And I found this uh, synagogue I really liked. I was definitely on a spiritual quest now, and I decided I was going to become a rabbi. So I enrolled in a master's program in Jewish studies. I moved back to Calgary, Canada. I became Calgary's first ever Jewish hospital chaplain, and it was just an internship for, I think it was 13 weeks. It was the most stressful thing I had ever done in my life, and when it was finished, I said, I'm never going to do that again. I'm glad to be out of it. So then I got uh, a job as the Jewish chaplain at the University of Calgary. And you'll recall call that I was married to a woman addicted to opioids. She died of an overdose. And all kinds of feelings around her death, I think even at the time part of me was relieved it was over. Uh, and the politics of uh, being a campus Jewish chaplain were brutal. And I decided, okay, I've had it. And so what did I do? I went back to hospital chaplaincy, but not just any chaplaincy position. I became the resident chaplain for the emergency, intensive care, and burn units because I thought that would be less stressful than being a campus chaplain. Trust me, it wasn't. And uh, two things happened that changed the course of my life during my time there. And the first was a patient in the burn unit. Um, during the morning rounds when all the doctors and everybody gets together, 
the psychiatric intern reported that uh, a patient had come in. Uh, he had previously made several suicide attempts, and this time he had attempted suicide by setting himself on fire. And he said, you know, we'd really like to get him psychiatric treatment, but he's refusing. We'll probably send him home and he'll kill himself. And I said, I want to see this patient. <laughs> and I went in every day to talk to him. And somehow or other, he clued into the fact that I was also a recovering addict. And he really opened up. And he talked about his experiences in NA. And then he talked about how he had talked someone in NA out of suicide. And I said to him, you saved someone's life. And he started to cry. And he said, I think I'm ready for the treatment program now. So I realized that, yes, maybe I have some skills in counseling. And a few days later, I got called to the ICU. And there was a patient there in a coma. And her husband was shaking her and slapping her face and saying, wake up, wake up. And you'll recall that my wife had died of an overdose a few months before. And I just stood there. I just froze and I went white as a sheet. And he turned and he saw me and he got up and he walked over to me and put a hand on my chest and he said, are you all right? And clearly I wasn't. And the next day I resigned. And I enrolled in a master's program in counseling psychology. And it was during that time that I wrote an essay, which was really the first step in take two of my book on sexual abuse recovery. So let me set it up for you. You may have heard of the peak experiences described by Abraham Maslow. Basically, there are these times when we feel at one with the universe. We feel this profound connection. And people describe these peak experiences as the best experiences of their lives. And Maslow got really excited about this and started investigating. And one of the questions he asked people was, well, has this peak experience affected your life? And people said, no, it was great, but no, it really hasn't affected my life. And then in 1963, a psychologist named Frederick Thorne wrote a really short paper for the Journal of Clinical Psychology. It was actually pretty lame. Probably no one else but him could have got that published. But he said, you know, we should be looking at the opposite of peak experiences. And he called the opposite of peak experiences nadir experiences, the very worst experiences of your life. And I'm sure a lot of people listening can identify with that. But Frederick Thorne never followed up on that. Although Maslow did in the second edition of his book, he did note that 
maybe we should be looking into these nadir experiences, the worst experiences of people's lives. But nothing ever came of that. So the term wasn't used for 50 years. And here I was, 50 years later, now a psychology student, writing an essay. Well, I was living in Calgary, and on weekends, I would climb mountains. Calgary's right close to the, it's in the foothills of the Rocky Mountains. And you, you climb these great peaks, and it's a wonderful experience. Uh, you can see snowy peaks for hundreds of miles. And it's, it, it's breathtaking, it's exhilarating, but when you look around you, it's just rock. There are no trees, no shrubs, no vegetation. It's in the valleys that things grow. What a metaphor for a transformative experience. It's in the valleys that things grow. And my essay talked about one of those valleys. It was an incident on March 6, 1987, in Zeebrugge, Belgium. The overnight car ferry to Dover, England, the Herald of Free Enterprise had just pulled out of the dock with about 600 passengers on board. And if you've been on a car ferry, you know that there's a gate at the front and it lowers to let cars off and then it, it raises again to keep water out when the ferry's moving. Well, the ferry was chugging slowly out along a long breakwater, it's about a mile long in the harbor. And nobody noticed that the gate was down. The ferry reached the end of the breakwater, the captain ordered full speed and a change in course to the south, toward Dover. And as the ferry sped up and turned, water surged through the open gate and the ferry began to sink. It sank in just 90 seconds. And although there were rescuers nearby, a third of the passengers died of hypothermia before the rescuers could even get to them. And three years after the disaster, a psychology student named Stephen Joseph interviewed survivors of that disaster. And he found, unsurprisingly, that 46% of them suffered from PTSD and addiction and things like depression, anxiety. But what nobody expected was that 43% of the passengers said they had experienced positive results from the trauma. It, it was astonishing. And a year after the Herald disaster, another cruise, uh, cruise ship called the Jupiter sank off the coast of Greece. 
And armed with information from the Herald disaster, Stephen Joseph and his collaborators uh, interviewed uh, survivors. And every single one of the hundreds they interviewed, every single one disagreed with the statement, my life has no meaning anymore. They had PTSD, they were suffering from addictions and all kinds of horrible things, but all of them said had found at least some meaning. Almost everyone appreciated life more. Almost everyone appreciated relationships more. Nine out of ten valued other people more. Seven out of ten said they were more understanding and tolerant. And it was the discovery of what they now call post-traumatic growth. The ability to grow psychologically after a terrible trauma. So I wrote this essay about the nadir experience of trauma and about trauma recovery. I submitted it to the Journal of Transpersonal Psychology. By the time it got published, I was in private practice as a psychotherapist in British Columbia. An editor read it, and he invited me to submit a paper to a prestigious journal. And he said, like, there's no free free pass that this gets peer-reviewed. A bunch of people are going to look at this paper and see if it's fit for publication. So I submitted it. And the peer reviewers said, well, it's fine, but, you know, we really need you to explain how you do therapy with trauma. And I suddenly realized that my knowledge of how to do therapy on trauma, uh, uh, people with trauma, was based on my having had PTSD, uh, complex PTSD for most of my life. It just came naturally to me. They had no clue. They wanted me to explain, so I did. And then I very briefly talked about my own experience, which was pretty daring for an academic journal. But I talked about how in the aftermath of, uh, I think I actually was making this specifically about sexual abuse, but I said, you gradually uncover memories. And each time those memories come up, you're dealing with returning PTSD. And it's as if you're back in a desert. There's no growth around you at all. But I said, sometimes the desert can bloom. And the title of my the article for this journal was When the Desert Starts to Bloom. It was 10 pages in pretty small print. In book form, it probably would have been about 50 pages. And from that seed, my book grew. I was writing blogs for my professional page, basically thousand-word articles. And I started putting them together. And I didn't have nearly enough, so I wrote and I wrote until I had about 50 of these articles. It happened over the course of several years. And I wove them together and I created a book. 
it's basically a book about trauma. But you'll remember that I had been determined to write a book for male survivors of sexual abuse. So that's who I addressed it to. It is relevant, the information in it is relevant to all survivors of sexual abuse and indeed to all survivors of childhood trauma. And I will be describing it, uh, going through what it talks about after a brief break, but uh, I think uh, now is probably a good time for questions. Well, that was a lot. That was a lot of powerful information. You literally took us through the journey of the beginning years of what you experienced, the trauma, the pain, in the earlier years of your life, um, and then into your youth and teenagehood. And now bring us to where you are today, very inspirational, very powerful, and many of us can relate. Um, I'm, I'm a survivor of child abuse from my father, and so even though it was different, you know, I'm a female, you're a male, and, you know, I can still relate because I understand the closeness and the disappointment and the hurt that comes with that, and then the boldness that it takes to be able to speak about it. Um, it's not easy. It's never an easy topic to talk about, but, you know, you grow into it <clears throat> the more you talk about it. And um, I like the fact that you talked about the analogy of the desert, um, Dr. Stagg, because uh, for me, when I talk about it, I say normally, you know, entering as much as I talk about my story, a lot of times it feels like I'm running into a burning building with a lot of rooms in it, and then I'm going into these rooms to save people. So I keep having to go into these burning rooms to help others survive, right? And I do it with passion yeah. and compassion. And, and you brought up something very important. A lot of us who have been through this severe level of trauma, this high level of severe trauma, because this is a trauma that, and I'm going I'm to share, when I used to have counselors when I was a child, I used to enjoy, I used to take them as a joke and interview them, and um, and they never really could answer my questions correctly because they were just so highly educated, but they were not experienced, okay, life experienced. Uh, yeah. But uh, the fact that you have not just the quality of, of um, training, and expertise, okay, well, very well-deserved titles that you've earned because of the level of disrespect that you've experienced, Uh, you know, you're able to to connect with survivors on a level that many professionals, they cannot. And uh, and so when adults used to try to connect with me counseling-wise, my question would be, would you, have you been through this? They're like, uh, no. Have you Ooh. been through that? <laughs> no. And they could never answer me as a child. Uh, and so my mom tried to get me help. Um, so anyways, um, it's not about me, but I was able to connect to a lot of the story because it's uh, very easy to connect. Now, I'm going to go back to the earlier years, if I may. Um, you know, you talked about your, your, your father. Can you tell us a little bit about 
what happened with him. Did you ever get a chance to say to him what happened? Did any other siblings share with you that they've experienced anything like it? Not sure if you feel comfortable talking about that part, but can you let us know what happened with your dad? And then, and, and I'm asking that because I'm a child abuse survivor, I'm a suicide survivor, and I lost my sister to suicide. Later on, we found out she also was abused. So a lot of these, like you said, PTSD, depression, anxieties, and all of these issues that come with and addictions, okay, that come with survivors of this high level of abuse, um, you know, so if you could answer a little bit of that, that would be great. Okay, uh, no. Um, my father was not approachable at all, and uh, my siblings, it, they're, uh, they're just, I think, determined um, to paint a rosy picture of the family. Um, mm-hmm. uh, whether they believe in it or not, um, that's, uh, that's what's happening. So I mm-hmm. wasn't able to talk to my father, and I couldn't talk to my siblings. So I was... I was pretty much alone. There wasn't anybody that I felt I could talk to. Now, you did say you had a best friend at one point. Did you ever try to open up to an adult, or do you ever feel safe enough to open up to your best friend or anyone at all? Okay, well, my best friend was alcohol. <laughs> but oh, yeah, you no, did say I that. No, I didn't. Uh, yeah, um, but... Um, no, I mean, if you can't even trust your parents, who can you trust? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, 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 I just felt I could not trust anybody. So there was nobody that I felt safe uh, opening up to ever. That's fair. I want to open you know, up it, the mic. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Okay, all right. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, as a therapist, I'm often the very first person that people have told. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's just that, you know, they they tell me they feel safe, that I have somehow Mm -hmm. created safety for them. Um, And they often pick up on the fact that I was abused, even though I, I never actually tell them. So, yeah. Okay. So go ahead. The relatability, right? So we have um, we have a guest as well. I want to first um, check with my co-host, Miss Kim Lakin, um, and and give her the opportunity to come in. Um, go ahead, Miss Lakin. Are you talking to me, Anna Alicia? Thank you. Yeah. Oh no, Hi, I, I think she's off. Oh. But- Okay. Yeah, you can bring. If okay. you want to go ahead, you can go ahead and talk. I can, I can say what I was no, going to say. No, 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 no. It's okay. No, no, no. I know <laughs> that. It's okay. Go ahead. Not at all. No, I was trying to get off of mute. You know that always seems to be a problem. <laughs> <laughs> it happens. Start talking. Um, no, I just, I don't want to have a question or anything, Russell. I'm, I, I'm sorry that you had to go through all of that as well. You know, as you know. We all have pretty much been through something, but it, it is yeah. just sad. And like you said, that just yeah, resonated with me so much, the fact that, um, yeah. yeah, if you can 
trust your parents? Who can you trust? And and so I think a yeah. lot of us were kind of in that boat of like, oh, I can't really tell anybody because I should be telling them what they're me. So I'm sorry. But you had to go through that as well. Yeah. Honored to be able to share your story. Yeah, thank you. Being on again. <laughs> Since Monday last week didn't work too well. Or <laughs> but um, we're glad that you're on again. I know you're right. Okay. You've been on before. <laughs> but thank you. Okay, so uh, uh, should I get on with uh, talking about the book? So, so we have. Um, sorry, just uh, Annalisa. Oh, okay. Go ahead. Um, I know you had a okay. question. Go ahead. Yes. Okay. Hi, um, my name is Annalisa. Um, I just wanted to to tell you thank you for sharing your story. Um, I it resonated with oh, me. Oh, you're welcome. I'm definitely new to um, sharing my story, and you know. My whole life kind of feeling like I haven't had a voice and I've been scared to talk about uh-huh. it. And um, after losing my mother last year, kind of rehashed and I guess unlocked all these repressed memories that I had. And um, long oh, story boy, short, yeah. I recognized what you were saying. And I recently became um, uh, was certified in sexual abuse for children out here in Florida. Um, and in my study, oh. there was a lot. Um, where you were stating how, you know, young boys are not heard and how their mothers are not typically looked at or even investigated to a certain point and how they're protected and how they don't feel heard. And, you know, um, after realizing recently my father abused me and raped me as a child for many years. And um, I, after investigation and things like that, I come to find out, and my mom had told me but I didn't believe her because I didn't want to believe it, my father's mother was sleeping with him, even in, as he was an adult. But I never believed it. Wow. So it just kind of ties into what wow. you were saying. Like, yeah, there's. So now I'm, you know, on this road of like, I really want to even create a book. And you know, um, I'm in school right now and become a peer, you know, a advocate and a peer specialist to help people, even as an adult, you know, to have help for their trauma and their PTSD. I have so many things now working with my therapist that I didn't realize that I suffered from, but it was because of that. Even GI issues, there's just so much with the trauma that's tied to the sexual abuse that we don't understand. And now that I have come to that conclusion and understanding, all I want to do is help. And it's helping me recover as well and find my voice. And um, I just want to tell you thank you. I really appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. Yeah, well, good for you for, you know, your path, too. Thank you. Yes. Thank you so much for sharing, Annalisa, and thank you for your courage uh, to share and also to walk in your recovery and help others. We appreciate it. Thank you. I appreciate it. (laughs) All right. Um, Dr. Say, if you can just take us to the next step. I know you want to talk about your book, and we need to hear about your book. So I'm going to open up the mic. Okay. All right. So my book is One in Six, A Man's Guide to Overcoming Childhood Sexual Abuse. And it differs from other books on sexual abuse because I don't have a lot of stories about the past. Uh, Because as I say in my book, healing doesn't happen in the past. It's about what's happening to you now. Um, There's a lot about PTSD and addiction, the two biggest problems facing survivors. And I cite amazing statistics about 
male victimization and female perpetration. So I start with a grounding exercise for when you get triggered and suggestions for self-care when you get triggered because people reading my book are going to get triggered. So that's right at the beginning. Um, I talk about my story and, you know, having to perform oral sex on my mother when I was young. Uh, I talk about that very sparingly, uh, probably one to two pages, um, and then one page on the after effects, uh, because the story isn't about my abuse. It's about the recovery. Um, and I, the, I talk about the stages, the abuse and the damage, the turning point, which I talked about just reading that book and just being completely overcome, and then the post-traumatic growth. The statistics I cite are based on reputable studies with tens of thousands of subjects. And I simply report on their conclusions. At least 40% of child sexual abuse survivors are male. Most had female perpetrators. A third were abused by their mothers. Those conclusions are based on really, really solid research by highly reputable researchers. And I find the same in my practice. Of hundreds of clients I've had, one was abused by a priest, one by a coach. Most of the rest had female perpetrators, and at least a third were abused by their mothers. And typically when I tell female therapists this, they say, well, I never see it. In my experience, it's really rare. And what they don't realize is that many male survivors have told me that they were unable to disclose their abuse to female perpetrators. So those female therapists are seeing it every day. They just don't realize it. In the next section of my book, there, in the next section of my book, I have uh, two chapters on PTSD. Most people don't know that sexual violence is the number one cause of PTSD. And my clients typically suffer from complex PTSD, which I suspect many of you do. Um, it also involves anger, easily hurt feelings, uh, sense of guilt, problems with emotional intimacy, and feeling distant from people. Most survivors have experienced PTSD, and there is a good chance you're experiencing some degree of post-traumatic stress right now. Um, Earlier, I talked about my own experience with uh, flashbacks. Uh, they can be vivid like that one, but very often a flashback can be just emotions. People don't recognize it as a flashback. And there was an example of one that happened to me. You know, I talked about this experience of uh, this group and desperately wanting to save this girl uh, that was being abused. And I was sitting in a hotel room by myself. I was watching a, a drama on TV uh, about uh, a hostage taking, and then at the end they uh, saved the hostages. And as they were leading the hostages out, at the front of the line was a little girl being led by a female policeman, a female police officer. And I just lost it. I just started crying. Tears were just streaming down my face. 
because I was remembering an event where a little girl wasn't rescued. Um, in the book, I talk about dissociation and my own experiences, um, doing some pretty crazy things when I was dissociated. Um, I had um, I, I, I had rented an office for my practice, and it was a really big deal for me. And I, as I was walking back to my car, I felt as if someone had taken over my body. I got into my car, and my first thought was, where's the steering wheel? I was sitting on the right side of my car. I learned to drive in England where the steering wheel is on the right side of the car. I hadn't been back for 30 years, <laughs> but somehow the part of me that had taken over my body was still back there. So it was kind of amusing. Um, then in the next section, I talk about, um, I have three chapters on addictions, including addictions to porn and sex. Um, I've counseled both male and female clients addicted to porn and sex. I talk about my own struggles with addiction and uh, give some advice for addiction first aid. And then I talk about, um, oh yeah, so yeah, just some helpful advice for addiction first aid. Uh, think about scenarios that might cause you to drink, use, or act out again. Be ready for them with an emergency action plan. Then be ready with some strategies. Think about using including long-term consequences. Have support people you can call. Plan your time so you won't be bored. Give yourself half an hour if you're on the verge of relapsing. Remember, recovery won't always be pain-free. And remind yourself addictions cause more pain in the end. I then I talk about what to look for in a therapist and I get to a an issue a rather thorny issue and that is EMDR therapy I know there are people out there who swear by it people phone me up asking me if I do EMDR therapy and when I say I don't they hang up um, EMDR for those who don't know it's eye movement desensitization and reprogramming it's used for PTSD. It's trendy and it's widely used, but it's problematic. Inexperienced therapists can pay a thousand dollars or so to take a weekend course. They get a certificate that says they're trauma therapists and then they go around telling people EMDR is the best therapy for uh, PTSD. Couple of sessions and you're all fixed. The American Psychological Association became so concerned about this, they set up a committee. In theory, it's to look into, it was, it was to look into PTSD treatment, but really it was to address all the hype around EMDR. And they reported that EMDR was questionable, that the best treatments for trauma are all based on the techniques of cognitive behavioral therapy. My two regulatory colleges require therapists to disclose that EMDR is not the best therapy for PTSD, that there are dangers to it, and they're not to make any promises about how effective it is. So although 
some people will come to me wanting to do EMDR. I do not do it. I do not recommend it. And I have the backing of the American uh, Psychological Association and my regulatory colleges. So, you know, some people are not going to like that, but that is what the American Psychological Association is telling us. Then, after PTSD and addiction, I get to the biggest issue for male survivors, and that is hostile therapists. If you're a female survivor of abuse by a male, you can pretty much expect compassion and empathy from your therapist. So, you know, you could imagine a woman going to a male therapist talking about how she was raped by her father as a child. And then the therapist said, huh, I wonder what made him do that. Most people would consider that highly inappropriate, even unethical. But if a male survivor of abuse by a female goes to a therapist, I can pretty much guarantee he will not be treated with compassion and empathy. I can pretty much guarantee it. I can pretty much guarantee the therapist will rush to defend the perpetrator. Every female therapist I have ever been to, every single one has said to me, I wonder what made her do that. It's sexist. It makes a survivor feel blamed for the abuse. It's highly inappropriate, it's unethical, and I would like to see my book put a stop to it. Then in another section, I talk about self-care. And one of the things I talk about that's actually quite important is self-care if you're getting a job. Survivors of sexual abuse are often underemployed or unemployed. It's a real issue. And it's so hard when you're looking for a job to constantly experience rejection. So in my book, I talk about what you need to tell yourself if you're looking for a job. What if you don't have the confidence, though? You may be sabotaging yourself with self-talk like, I'll never get hired for a decent job. Who'd employ me? I lost out again. Of course, I don't know why I even bother applying. Messages like that are so damaging and toxic, they virtually guarantee you won't get hired. So change them. Tell yourself things like, things are different. Now I have a year of sobriety. This job isn't what I want eventually, but I can show them I'm reliable and hardworking. I have a network of friends who believe in me and can put in a good word for me. I'm seeing opportunities I never saw before. It's hard, but staying positive will help your job prospects. Whenever you find yourself thinking it's hopeless, make sure you give yourself a good talking to. I also talk in my book about how trauma affects relationships, another big issue for survivors of sexual abuse. And I explain a little bit about couples counseling. And the the selection here is about taking out the garbage. Uh, You know, it's, it's kind of stereotypical. But when a couple argues about 
taking out the garbage. It's never really about the garbage. So here's what I wrote. In sessions with couples, I encourage them to start with what is going on underneath the anger. I feel let down when you don't take out the garbage. Notice what's happening here. Your upset is about you. If the other partner can resist getting defensive or shutting down, and it may take practice, he might respond with, it hurts to see you feeling let down. I might encourage him to tell her how he feels when she criticizes. I feel attacked. I feel so inadequate, or I feel alone. Notice the importance of beginning with the word I. Those feelings are what drove the argument in the first place, but when you start talking about them, you're not arguing anymore. Once you are able to talk about your feelings for each other, though, you will start to recognize that those feelings are because you love each other. When Chelsea complains about Kyle not taking out the garbage, it's because she's so afraid that the person she loves is letting her down. When Kyle shuts down, it's because he feels abandoned by the person he loves. In my book, I then talk about topics like suicide prevention, and I talk about mindfulness meditation. I am obliged to put in a warning that mindfulness meditation can bring up um, memories uh, 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 traumatic memories but in fact I've never had a client who's complained about that happening so you know I have to put it in for my you know so don't get this discipline for it or anything but really it is something I encourage because when you're mindful you're in the present and the present is where you heal um, the the past is where the trauma is and you try as much as possible to stay a present. I also talk about assertiveness. It's a really important skill. I end up talking it, uh, teaching it to almost all my clients. And so let me just explain what assertiveness is, because a lot of people think assertiveness and aggressiveness are the same. They're not. So being assertive means you stand up for yourself without attacking others. You say no, but don't give offense. You respect yourself without dis disrespecting others. You can think of assertiveness as being halfway between passivity and aggression. It can be really hard to figure out where that halfway point is. If the waiter brings the wrong meal, you simply point out that's not what we ordered. You don't stay silent, being passive, but you don't get nasty and attack him, being aggressive. There was a mistake, and you would like it fixed. When the waiter brings the correct order and apologizes, you smile or say, no problem. There was a problem, but now it's taken care of. With a cashier who shortchanges you, you simply point out the error and get it corrected. Within seconds, the matter is resolved. If you're upset about something, you express how you feel with as little blame as possible, beginning with the word I. You tell your spouse, I feel really let down, you forgot our anniversary. You give her or him the opportunity to heal the rift in your relationship and you avoid stuffing feelings of anger and resentment. And that brings us to anger. And I have 
taught anger management. And here's, I just have a brief paragraph here that I uh, will quote. Richard Carlson wrote an excellent book on not sweating the small stuff. But if you have a problem with anger management, there are times you should ignore his advice. As I discussed in an earlier chapter, if you stuff your emotions, it's like shaking a bottle of soda water. Do it enough times and it will explode. So release them. Not the anger, but what's underneath. The feelings of being disrespected or hurt or unfairly treated. Voice them firmly or politely insist on your rights. Do that regularly and you won't find yourself shouting at a store clerk or yelling at other drivers or even swinging a rebar. I talk about family, and uh, this has already come up. When you spill the family secrets, it can turn on you. And they can all say, you know what, we're the most loving family on the planet, where we all just love each other. Well, everybody except you. Uh, You're the bad guy. And all you can do in a situation like that is set boundaries or, you know, as if you need, you may need to cut them off, as I did with my mother. Um, and it's, it, it's something that I help my clients do when they clearly need to do it, that uh, a family member is so toxic that they need to cut them loose. And I talk about forgiveness. And I know that there are all these religious messages about how you should forgive. But you need to be careful. And so let me just read what I wrote in my book about forgiving. The past few years and the Me Too movement have shown us that perpetrators often offend over and over while society turns a blind eye. That's why we need to hold people to account, not forgiving them past indiscretions. We need to draw attention to those who previously got a free pass for rape. We need to stop forgiving if it means someone will do it again. Such premature forgiveness could make us parties to child rape. So before you beat yourself up for not forgiving, I beg you to recognize there may be times when you cannot forgive. Times when you must not forgive. The problem is, some people, including therapists, will tell you that you need to forgive yourself for crimes committed against you. If you need to do that, though, it must mean you are to blame, right? So don't go there. Don't ever go there. And as the book closes... I talk about growing from trauma and how when new memories come up, the PTSD comes back and it's like being in the desert again. And so I'd just like to read the past, the last two um, paragraphs of the book. As our recovery progresses, we may encounter not a single desert, but a series of them as we deal repeatedly with new memories. Each time we may experience flashbacks, 
struggle with addictions and battle inner turmoil, eventually we start to see change and growth again. In this book, I've tried to cover all the ways you can nourish growth in yourself. I've discussed sex, relationships, suicidal thoughts, assertiveness, anger, self-care, choosing a therapist, dealing with family, and not rushing to forgive. I encourage you to return to the chapters of this book as they seem appropriate, whenever they seem appropriate. Like me, you may have times when you find yourself back in the desert again, seeing nothing but desolation all around. Don't give up. The seeds of recovery are within you. And with a little water and sunlight, their sprouts will find their way to the surface. That's when the desert starts to bloom. And I was going to call my book When the Desert Starts to Bloom, but I realized if I did that, it would probably end up in the gardening section. So it's called One in Six, A Man's Guide to Overcoming Childhood Sexual Abuse. Uh, you can read a bit of it on Amazon. I have a website where I have excerpts from it. Um, it's russellauthor.ca. That's russellauthor.ca. Russell has double S and double L. Um, you can get a Kindle edition. It's pretty reasonably priced. And as I said before, it's addressed to male survivors because I felt I needed to do that. But almost everything in it applies if you're a female survivor of sexual abuse or if you suffered physical or emotional abuse. So I do hope my talk has been useful. And I thank everybody for listening. And I would be delighted to entertain your questions now. Thank you. Thank you so much. You know, I mean, a lot of what you oh, said, many of us, many of us can relate and and take something away. You know, you gave wonderful nuggets. I think um, in the area of anger management um, and understanding that when you're forgiving family members, it's okay to cut people off. Um, and that's not just family members. That's, that could be friends or anyone who's negative and toxic. So I completely agree. I've had to do that um, with a few people. But guess what? It just creates peace in your life. And you start to control the, your environment and the peace on which you allow to disrespect you or to hurt you. Because when we were younger, we did not have any control to stop these people who were abusive from abusing us. And so to be able to stand up for yourself and set a boundary, I think is really important um, to do it, even if you do it with respect and love and peace and all that good stuff. But it, it gives you a sense of it, it strengthens you and it, it makes you feel like you can protect that little boy in you or that little girl in you who has lived a life without a voice for so long and been disrespected and abused. Um, in so many, so many levels, um, and not rushing to forgive. Yeah, yeah, that, think, that's, yeah go ahead. Mm-hmm. It, uh, it, that's absolutely right. Uh, you know, setting boundaries with people, mm-hmm. even cutting them off, 
is one of the most important skills that survivors can learn. Yep. And we have to practice so, that because we, we, we didn't have a voice for so long. Um, I wanted to uh, invite our co-host, Ms. Kim. I don't know if you had a comment or a question, something you want to share. Please join us. Okay, thank you. Yeah, we have a couple of people, mm-hmm. and I don't know what to them, but um, yeah, I can just relate you know, quite a bit with what you're talking about, and um, especially setting the boundaries goes. I've been really working on that myself as far as, um, you know, allowing one of my abusers to still be an intricate part of my life because my dad and so I have been groomed and trained to to always be there for him and now we're the only people left in the family everybody else has died with my younger brother and so I am really having to start to set some really hard boundaries and it's hard because he's getting older and more elderly but he's also getting more demanding, and I am at the point in my life where I'm like, you know what, I am done just bowing over and doing everything that everybody else wants because I've done that since I was five years old. And I took, you know, taking care of him since I was five years old, basically. And, um, yeah. you know, yeah, he's getting older now, but I've also, you know, I've had a lot more in my life, too, and he never stops to ask about that, it's just always about what I can do for him. So I'm starting to, to see things a little bit more clearer now, too, and I, I do think that a lot of it has been age and then also the therapy that I've gotten into, for sure. And, um, I do a, just started this, yeah. I think I've been to four sessions of the soul equine, equine therapy, so it, you know, just Letting the horse's energy help to heal you and um, and help you to start feeling more with your heart and getting out of your head. So again, that's what we do. We're always thinking about ways, or I did anyway, about ways that I can help everybody else, and that's where my mind always goes. And the detriment of me completely losing myself and feeling like I have nothing to even get my three grown kids and my six grandkids. And so I need to start putting those boundaries up. Yeah, it's been kind of a hard for a while, but I'm sorry it took so long. Yeah. <laughs> we get to this point, because I know it's hard. It's extremely hard on him, but, you know, I get what you're saying. So it, oh, yes. thank you for sharing that. Thank you for, 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 thank you for sharing that, too. And, you know, I, I've sometimes told people, you know, who have trouble setting boundaries, I'll say, you know, you're really mean. And they go, what? And I say, look at how you treat yourself. That's so mean. <laughs> and it, it's important, you know, that on the list of people that we look after, we have to put ourselves number one. You know, even if you have children, even if you have a spouse, you have to look after yourself so you can look after others. But 
the self-care piece, it's so important. And that may mean setting boundaries with toxic people. Mm-hmm. Where could we find your book? We can ask you a question. Why did you uh, use the word, why did you call it one in six? What does one in six stand for? Oh, okay. So the um, there was a, uh, a study done in 2005. And they said that one in six males had been sexually abused. That's almost certainly an underestimate, but um, it became the title for my book because it's just a reminder of how prevalent uh, sexual abuse of males is. So, yeah, thank you for the question. That's powerful. Yeah, that's powerful. Where can people find your book? Uh, you can find it on Amazon. Um, there's a Kindle edition, Kobo, um, uh, various online bookstores have it. Uh, in the States, uh, I think uh, Barnes & Noble has it, I think, as well. So, yeah, all kinds of places online. So, yeah, just go to their website and look up 1 and 6, a man's guide to whatever, <laughs> and uh, it should bring it up. Yeah. Are you thinking about writing another book? I think people would definitely, you know, love uh, hearing from you. Well, I think I'll I'll see how well this is received. Um, uh, right now, I've the book's just come out, and I'm trying to let people know about it, drum up interest, and I recognize that's going to take a while. Um, so, uh, but if if it does uh, succeed, um, I suspect I will be writing another book, yeah. Yeah, because you said that you wrote a lot of articles. So even if you put some of those articles uh, from your writing together, I'm sure that there's so much, there's a wealth of information already there as well. I have have no trouble writing. Uh, I guess the thing is to find uh, something that people will read. And... uh, you know, uh, I'd be interested to see how well the book does. Um, selling yeah. a book for male survivors is pretty tricky because men don't want to touch a topic like this, particularly when I talk about female perpetrators. That's a really tough one for, for men. Yeah, but definitely it's a great topic. And maybe when you work on your workbook, because people... Sometimes, like you said, they don't like to come forward and talk to counselors. But sometimes people may do a workbook at home privately and then realize, like, okay, I do want more support, but at least this is the first step to get me going. Um, so I think yes. that book that you wrote is amazing, and that is definitely bringing a light to a topic that needs to be addressed. Um, I've spoken to a lot of male friends who have shared with me privately, you know, once you share with them, a lot of times other survivors will share many times when they feel safe. depends on who they feel safe with. But you're creating a safe space by sharing your story and um, sharing your book. I think that's a beautiful thing. Thank you for all that you're doing in the community, and thank you for furthering your education in the field that you've survived to help other people survive. Yeah, you're welcome. Yeah. Is there anything so, else, yeah. um, any words, anything you want to leave us with? We have about five minutes. Anything 
you want to share, things that people can look out for, or any anything that you want to share. Your, is your oh, okay. okay. So, um, yeah, I, 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 you know, I used to be a chaplain. And uh, so in my book, I talk about uh, spiritual healing. And when I talk about it, it's usually healing from, uh, you know, an abusive uh, religious background. Um, and so I'm not, I'm not pushing any religion. I mean, I'm, I'm Jewish, but I don't push any religion. I don't necessarily encourage people to, to join a religion but I do talk about, you know, what, what are you looking for? You know, perhaps uh, you just get, uh, you know, you just need nature. Whatever it is you're looking for. And I have an exercise in, in that. Um, but one of the things I talk about, you know, I talked about, you know, the valleys. And so I thought maybe I'll just read what I wrote about that. You may be looking for uplifting spiritual moments, such as the peak experiences described and researched by psychologist Abraham Maslow. My guess is not too many readers are having peak experiences in their lives. Many of us know far too well their very opposite, the nadir experience of child rape. The surprising thing, though, is that a peak experience is like a mountaintop. It's exhilarating. It's wonderful. And when you look about you, what do you find? No trees, no shrubs, no vegetation. It's in the valleys that things grow. Our moments of feeling wounded beyond repair can lead to our moments of greatest healing. The lowest points in our lives can turn into moments of growth and connection. Please remember that. And so it's, I think it's important to realize that, you know, it, it's, it's, in the, it's in the depth of, you know, dealing with the worst of trauma that we actually um, often get the most healing. Um, and... So let me, oh yeah, okay. So yeah, let me just uh, read one more thing. Um, do we have time? About three minutes? Okay. Yeah, so, um, two minutes, uh, so go okay. ahead. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I, uh, I'm talking about addiction recovery um, and I had just had surgery. The doctor had sent me home with morphine pills. And of course I had 19 years of recovery. That evening, I was in so much pain, I couldn't even stand. Dragging myself into the kitchen, I tore open the packet of morphine tablets, grabbed a glass, and filled it. I knew the pills would knock me out, and I would miss my Friday ritual. I also knew it would be the end of my sobriety, perhaps forever, but I hurt so much. Then a moment changed my life. As I looked up after pouring a glass of water, I saw my guitar beside the couch, the candles ready to be lit, and my dog Daisy waiting patiently for some of my bun. At my weakest moment, the moment I might have let my sobriety away, the only thought that saved me was that I didn't want to let Daisy down. I put the tablets back in the box and crawled over to the couch 
after I lit the candles and began singing a song welcoming the Sabbath angels, Daisy snuggled next to me. I was in a lot of pain, but with my pet there, everything was okay. That's what recovery's like. I wasn't pain-free, but I was content. So that was beautiful. Was... That was beautiful. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you for joining us, and thank you for sharing your story. We're down to 15 seconds. So we just want to, again, thank you, um, Dr. Sack, for sharing your story with us. Thank you for sharing your wonderful book, One in Six, and we hope well, that everybody can find yeah. a copy. Y'all have a good night. Okay. <laughs> thank you. Good night. Thank you, Russell. Good night. Have a good night. Thank you. Good night. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.